everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and today's episode was a fun one, actually. It was our first ever live episode, and I was joined by Ryan Sorley, the CEO of DoubleCheck Research, and we got into everything about win-loss analysis, how it fits into your competitive program, how to structure an interview, what you do with the insights. It was it was a really fun episode. Um, we're going to look to do a lot more of these, these live sessions. It's kind of a fun way to start building a community. It was great to see people's faces. And as you'll hear in the episode, folks were jumping on and asking their own questions. And that's really what we want to do here is answer the questions that you have. So with that all said, let's jump into today's episode. I'm joined by Ryan Sorley, the CEO of DoubleCheck Research. Ryan's the founder of the company, and he's been a leading authority on win-loss program design and execution. Ryan and his team, they've been working with some of the world's largest and smallest technology providers from established Fortune 100 companies to progressive startups, really just helping them understand the needs of their buyers. So Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Could you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself, your experience, and double check before we jump into everything here? Yeah, so my uh, background is research. I spent about 15 years across Gartner, Forrester, AMR research, and I spent most of that time in a sales and sales leadership position. So I spent a lot of time listening to buyers of technology um, provide feedback, positive and negative, about the sellers of technology. So about eight years ago, we launched DoubleCheck to try to bridge the gap and educate the sellers a little bit more on what the buyers are saying about them and how to take that feedback and make improvements in different uh, different areas. So that is me and that is us. All right, let's let's kick this thing off. First and foremost, we're going to have an audience. I'm th- I think some folks may be kicking off win-loss for the first time ever. Some might be experienced. Some might want the tactical advice on what to do in the weeds. And we're going to get to all of that. But I do want to just start this off by asking, why is win-loss important for for your business, Ryan? So I I think a lot of people struggle. We've seen a lot of people struggle with having blind spots within their their data. And uh, many organizations rely on reason code dropdowns in their Salesforce instance to be able to understand why they're winning and losing against competitors. And what the challenge with that is, is the data is not accurate often and not complete and doesn't provide that whole story. So if organizations are looking for more depth of intelligence, they really want to understand all the gritty details behind why an individual deal was won or lost or why a, a set of deals were won or lost. Win-loss is a really important part of that. The other aspect is the source of truth here. So being able to reach out to buyers, people who have recently evaluated you and your competitors, they have really current information about how they perceive you in the marketplace, how they think you're different, better, or worse. And they also have a ton of information about your competitors because they've just evaluated them. So if you're looking for super current and honest, straightforward feedback from people who know a lot about you and your competition, it's an amazing resource to tap into. And nothing against salespeople, but you know, they don't typically dig deep into competitive intelligence questions when they win or lose a deal. When they win a deal, they run off and cash their check and they're happy and they get celebrated. And when they lose a deal, they you know move on to the next deal pretty quickly. So stopping and, and collecting data to be able to you know inform your go-to-market decisions, make smarter decisions is is critical, so that you can win more, you can win more market share, you can have higher retention rates, all kinds of reasons. And so when when you look at a win-loss program and how it fits into the broader business, what are some of the key components as well that make a strong win-loss program? So a lot of it starts with the person who's running the program. It's not something that uh, can be done like part-time. So if you're a product marketer and you have 20 things on your plate and win-loss is one of those things, 
you know, you're going to get out of your program what you put into it, which is not a lot. So that's important to understand that it takes time and effort. And you really have to have somebody either fully committed to the process or a large part of their responsibility should be, should be committed to, to win-loss. The second is being consistent. So it's like working out. You know, if you hop on the treadmill once every month, you're not going to see a lot of results. You have to do it consistently over time. You have to keep at it. Not every report or interview that you have is going to yield tremendous value, but if you stick with it, you'll start to really uncover a lot of interesting nuggets. And those nuggets will be game-changing for you. And they might lead to you winning a deal that you thought was lost. Like we conduct a lot of interviews with losses who ended up not choosing anybody and those loss reports turn into win reports when we give that back to somebody and the salesperson uses it to get a deal, a deal back on track. So that's, that's pretty important as well, being consistent, finding those, those nuggets. Being realistic as well. You know, there's a lot of great information out there uh, from these buyers, but you have to be realistic that some of it will be validation, uh, which is important for a lot of organizations. Uh, not every single interview is going to tell you something that you didn't already, already know. So you have to kind of be realistic with expectations. The other thing is you have to get people to go with you on the program. You have to get buy-in from other stakeholders within your organization. It's not just about competitive enablement, collecting data in a vacuum and kind of using it on your own. It's about using it to inform other parts of the business, like you know, sales and product feedback and any go-to-market stuff or customer success. So the more you get people on board early and explain what it is that you're doing and get their input into the process and help them help you design the program in the right way, the, the better off you'll be. And then the last piece is just operationalizing the program. A lot of people will collect data in a win-loss program and it will sit on a shelf. They won't do anything with it because they haven't done the, the work to figure out like, well, what are we gonna do with this data? And who's gonna be involved? And should we build a committee to review the data that we're collecting? And you know, how do we build an action plan to turn this insight into something great for the organization? So that oper operationalization piece is critical for a lot of companies to see the true value in the program. Can I, uh, I when you mentioned that buy-in part, I, yeah. I, I'm that kind of, set off kind of a light bulb moment in my head because i've heard a lot of people say this like you need if you're building a compete program you need organizational buy-in you need key stakeholder buy-in if you're running win-loss same thing but how do you do that and what does that actually look like in practice to get buy-in from the key stakeholders so do you have some examples at all that you've seen on or or what works best for for achieving that yeah, so I guess it, it depends on where the program starts. And you know, we, we have programs where buy-in is, is like the first thing that happens because the, it's the board that is asking for a win-loss program. So buy-in just trickles down pretty quickly. But when the program starts with the product marketer or somebody on the CI side of the house, the really important step to take is to, to go sit down with the head of marketing, head of product, head of sales, um, customer success strategy, and talk to them a little bit about what you're doing, but spend a lot of time trying to understand, like, what are you struggling with? Where are your knowledge gaps? What are your blind spots? And then, like, what, what, what questions would you want me to ask in an interview um, to help inform whatever challenges that you're having? So, so the more you can get them to lean into the program and provide input into what they think the program should be, the stickier the program will be, they'll be anxiously waiting for any sort of feedback that comes through the program that aligns with their objectives. So if you're the head of sales and you provide feedback that, hey, I, I really wanna understand if my sales team is differentiating effectively, or if they have the ability to tell the value story in an effective way, um, or if they're practicing this new sales process that we've just put in place and spent a million dollars on, um, that those questions, those objectives will come out in the win-loss interviews and you'll be able to go back to them and say, listen, you have these questions. Here's all this great information that we've collected. 
um, on that particular area to inform your personal objectives. And the more you do that, the more partnership you're forming with these people, the more they're anxious to see the output come on a regular basis. The stickier your program is, the more visibility it gets, the more value that's driven through it. So that buy-in piece is critical. You don't want to just start a win-loss program on your own and just start calling into different organizations and collecting data without doing all of that prep work first and getting people to really go with you on, on, the, on the journey. Uh, same question here. Um, Neil Parker had a question. Neil, do you want to chime in? Because this is uh, your question is similar to like the starting point of building a win-loss program. And I think what Ryan's talking about here with the buy-in is like first and foremost. So I think this question kind of dovetails nicely into what Ryan's talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just uh, getting into the weeds now. Started off our competitive intelligence program about six months ago. And we, we've, we redesigned our CRM now so we can uh, collect some information from the sales reps on uh, lost opportunities. But I just wanted to get the story. What's a typical versus an optimal approach to win-loss analysis, designing the process over time? And what are some pitfalls that you can avoid along that route? So I, I, the, that, that last point on getting people's input is a really important part of the process. Um, the other step that, that's important to take is figuring out like, well, in conducting these interviews, what do I do with the data? How do I structure the um, summaries in a way that's effective? And then how do I analyze the data across different interviews to identify trends? That's the big challenge for a lot of people because they'll type notes during the interview and, and then those notes will go into some sort of a folder and then they'll struggle with trying to structure all this unstructured data. So we, we recommend a tool called Dovetail, which we're huge fans of. And Dovetail allows us to take an interview transcript, drop it in, and then we actually summarize. We come up with, with different um, learning objectives. So we summarize the business drivers, and this will be different for everybody, but business drivers, selection criteria, competition, sales feedback, pricing, product, whatever, whatever those important areas might be, we summarize them. And then within Dovetail, we can actually go and create manual text tags that show us what's trending within the data set at any given time. So it takes all of this unstructured, difficult to deal with data and puts it into a format that like, you know, boom, you know exactly at any time, positive and negative feedback about the sales experience, positive and negative feedback about product, competition, pricing, it's all right there. It takes a little work, but it, it gets you pretty far. So we recommend figuring out that piece. So it's not just a headache trying to get through all the data. We also recommend an online survey component. So, what we do is we actually field the online survey to the person who's agreed to the interview prior to the interview. So that enables us to collect a level of detail on, on that particular deal so that we can mentally get ready for that interview and, and know that we're probing into the right areas. It also gives us another type of data to, to review as well. Um, so, and then, you know, on the, on the back end of it, trying to figure out like, how am I gonna report this to leadership? You know, what is it that they, they're busy, they don't want to sit through a 50 slide deck, you know, how am I going to synthesize the data into a set of key takeaways that they can act on, and that are bite sized so coming up with some sort of a structured presentation to deliver the feedback back so that's the analysis side, the, the other piece uh, I'll mention is to get sales buy in upfront, uh, a lot of folks will look at these programs, a lot of sales folks as things that might get them in trouble. You know, hey, I don't think I did that well in this deal. I, I lost it. You know, the person's not calling me back. I don't want anybody speaking to them because they might expose that I did something that I shouldn't have or, or you know, wasn't as awesome as I think I am. So it's important to set expectations with the sales team through the chief revenue officer that this is not a witch hunt. You know, we're not looking to make people look bad. We're looking in, in the sales component is just a component. There's all this other data that we're collecting and that it's, it's gonna benefit them in a number of different ways. It's gonna help them uh, because the findings will go into go-to-market strategy stuff that will make them more effective and product enhancements and pricing restructures, it's all good. 
Um, so I think that that part is another another big big piece. On that note, too, because we talked off air a little bit about about this very bit, like the idea that it might feel like a witch hunt or something uh, when you're doing a win loss, because the key to an actual solid win loss analysis is radical transparency. You're trying to get as much transparency from the buyer and then you want to share that information out as unbiased as possible. Is there a difference? Like, I mean, for yourself, you, you're you're a, an agency that does this for for clients. Is there a difference you notice between people that do this in-house and yourself as an agency with potentially handling that skepticism or wariness around it becoming a sort of like pointing fingers, this is what's going wrong with folks? Yeah, you know, I, I think that we, we all have experienced like bringing somebody in from the outside is something that, you know, you're paying somebody. So you, you kind of feel like you want to listen to them a little bit more to get the value out of what it is that they're, that they're saying versus like your, your, you know, spouse who tells you to do something a million times and then, and then you don't, you know, you don't pay attention to them. Um, but somebody else comes in and tells you to do it and then you do it. So I think there's this element of, you know, people that we know really well, we don't necessarily feel like we have to take as seriously as, as maybe a stranger coming in to help provide guidance and, and advice in some sort of a structured, structured way. Um, does, does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. I actually also have a good question here from Katie. Um, Katie, would you like to ask your question too? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Yep. Great. Um, I was just curious when you're asking for orgs who you've closed lost or even closed one, do you typically incentivize them in some way to jump on a call with you? Um, and like, how do you typically approach that kind of first outreach, um, to kind of get them to want to engage with you in a, uh, in a win loss conversation? Yeah, there's a lot of philosophical discussions about incentives and whether or not to do them. We believe in providing incentives. We think that it's, you know, the person's giving us their time, you know, we should, and that's great, but, you know, we should be thankful and grateful and give them something in return. So our approach to incentives is, is kind of twofold. The first approach is we offer an incentive that is either a Amazon gift card or something of that nature or a charitable donation. And that tends to work well. We use a tool called Tango Card, um, which you just sign up for and you can send a link to the person and they can choose like from 100 different gift cards like Outback Steakhouse or, or Amazon gift card, uh, or they can choose from different different charitable organizations. So, so that's kind of one approach that, that we take and it works quite well. The other approach is, um, or the other thought is around who it is that you're, you're reaching out to and what's important to them. So if you're reaching out to the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, you know, a $100 Amazon gift card is not going to mean a whole lot to them. But if you check out their LinkedIn profile and see that they are the president of their local Boy Scout club or association, when you're reaching out to them, be like, hey, I noticed that you are the president of, I don't know if it's called a president for Boy Scouts, it's probably like a leader, Eagle Scout, <laughs> something like that. Arcala. Um, <laughs> but but if you if you do a little research and, and you say, listen, I want to help them out, they're much more open and, and appreciative than, than get, giving them something directly. So that's something else to, to take into consideration. And then, then the price, the, the amount as well will, will differ based on, on the person that you're reaching out to and the difficulty. Like if you're in the cybersecurity space, cybersecurity architects are sometimes pretty hard to get on the phone. They just, they're cagey, they don't want to share. So sometimes you have to give them a little bit more than you would um, somebody in the sales enablement space who's more than happy to speak with you because they get win-loss analysis. Great, thank you. And you mentioned too, um you typically collect some information up front. So is that kind of like your second touch point once they once they kind of opt into having that conversation with you, do you send some sort of like survey to them to collect that information upfront before you jump on a conversation? Yeah, that's right. So we, we ask for them to participate. And as part of the process, we're scheduling the interview and then we're sending a pre-interview survey. We call it pre, a pre-interview survey. And we position that as, hey, listen, we want to optimize the time with you. You know, would you mind just completing the survey and 
that will help streamline our discussion. So we position it as like an advantage, you know, to them. Um, but in reality, it, it's an advantage to both of us because it really gives us a lot of interesting insight up front. Great question, Katie. I appreciate that. Um, we also have, before we get into like the structuring of the interview, one more question here from uh, Kevin, I believe it. Um, Kevin, if you wanted to jump on as well, it's a, similar to kind of Neil's question about the starting point um, and what what to do and what not to do to start with here. So Kevin, uh, are you are you with us here? Oh, I yes, see. Can you. you hear me? Yep. Yep. Hey Ben. Hey hey uh, Ryan. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks. So my question was, when a win-loss program fails, what are the major contributors and how do you avoid those? By the way, ours is considered a success, so it's not from personal experience, but I'm sure a lot of people contemplating this are going, it's, it's um, Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that there's a, a number of different reasons when, why a win-loss program fails. Um, I think that organizational buy-in is a big one. You know, you, you want to make sure that the organization's on board with whatever you're doing and the information that, that you're delivering um, so that you can act upon it in the, in the right way. The other one is people not taking action on the insights, not knowing what to do with the data once, uh, once they have it. They might think it's great. This is super helpful, but... I don't have the ability to, to act on this uh, right now. Um, the, the other is, you know, maybe they're not learning as much. Maybe there's uh, not, there's a lot, whole lot of validation, but there's no aha moments for them. That could be another reason why they, they uh, slow down on, on their program. The, the key component is often the person who owns, I, I mentioned this earlier, if you have somebody who's in the seat, um, that really gets win-loss, really understands how to operationalize it, really understands how to drive it internally. Um, that is a key component. And what happens sometimes is, is you, you might have a person like that and then they leave, right? Um, and then the, the, the responsibility falls to somebody else who did not sign up for win-loss. Um, and it is one of 20 things that they're responsible for. So it starts to lose a bit of steam at that point as well. So those are some of the contributing factors for, for failure. Great. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Kevin. Um, I want to jump into as well the interview portion of, of, of win-loss as well. So you've got the person you've incentivized, your president of the Cub Scouts to hump, jump on to a win-loss call with you. How do you structure a win-loss interview for it to be as successful as possible too? So there's a lot of different components to structuring the win-loss um, interview to be successful. I, I, I think I'll point back to the prep part just to start. So in order for, for a program to be super successful, you have to make sure that it's set up for success first. And for that interview to be successful, you have to make sure you know, you're asking the right questions, you're getting to the information that's important to, to your stakeholders um, at, at that particular moment. So that planning part to make sure that you have a set of learning objectives, that you built a conversation guide that will align to those learning objectives, that will support all of those stakeholders and make them happy and feel full with all of the content that you're providing is, is super important. That's kind of the, the first level of prep. There's a second level of prep, which is to check out the person that you're interviewing. Uh, make sure that you understand who they are, what their background is, if they are in fact part of the Boy Scouts or not. Um, and, and do a little bit of, of work up front so that when you get on the phone with them and you, you can connect with them, be like, hey, I noticed you're a Boy Scout, so am I, you know, something like that. Um, so it's, it's important to, to, to do that. That pre-interview survey is another important point too, right? So that's, that's all about the setup for, for success. When you get into the interview itself, you want to um, try to find a connection with them off the bat. You don't want to be a, a robot on the interview and read a script. You want to be conversational and, and be authentic and be grateful that, that they're there spending time with you because they don't have to be. They could be doing something else. Um, and you're lucky to have them on the phone. So you want to kind of let them know that you're excited to be there. Let them know you're excited for their feedback. Make them feel good. Let them know that you know them because you've done the homework. You've looked at their LinkedIn profile. You've gone to their company website. You, you have a good 
understanding of, of, of them. And then you want to start to get them to talk about themselves, everybody's favorite topic, right? And you want to make sure that you're asking some warm up questions about them, right? Because those are the easiest questions for them to answer. They know all about themselves. So you want to get a sense of their of their role and responsibilities and their their responsibilities specifically as it relates to the interview itself. And then when you actually start to get into the discussion, um, you want to make sure it's structured and you want to make sure that the structure is aligned in a very logical way. And, and you know, we align interviews in the in the along the buyer's journey, right? We we want to start off with the awareness stage, move to consideration and then decision. So we want to understand upfront, like why? What why did you why were you looking for a solution? Like what drove you to look at different options? What challenges were you having internally? And then throughout the course of the discussion, you want to bring them all the way to the end where they are talking about the competitors that they looked at and the decision that they made in the contract negotiation process or anything that might be super useful to, to your stakeholders, right? Who, who you're ultimately pulling the information together um, for. At the end of the interview, you do want to make sure that you are um, asking a, a big Hail Mary type question. And it could be something like, hey, if you're the CEO of Clue tomorrow, where would you further invest in the business? Like, what would you do differently? You know, where would you develop the product in a different way? Like, help us help you build a solution that's better for you to be able to better enable you now and, and in the future. So that kind of a closing question. Yeah. That, cl that closing question, uh, I'm sure as you recommend it, you've asked this before many times. Is there some examples of some like really illuminating answers you received um, on, on when you yeah. ask something like that? Yes, of course. <laughs> Every time. Um, <laughs> without so, fail. Yeah, without fail. I, I actually recently conducted an interview uh, for, for a company and the big question at the end led to the, the buyer um, who was a, a chief security officer for, for a big um, company, finance company, he said, hey, listen, you know, I would have the CEO give me a call directly. I'm sure this was a loss. I'm sure that their solution can support us. I just didn't get that in the sales process, but I'm sure if I had a conversation directly with them, we could hash it out. Okay, like there's your action item. Like there's your lost opportunity that may now turn to a one opportunity. So it's interesting because because a lot of the conversation, while it's organic and free-flowing, people are like holding back because some of your organic free-flowing open-ended questions are specific. <laughs> but this is a very non-specific question and it gives them the opportunity to like share what's on their mind. And in this case, that's what was on this person's mind. Um so yeah, talking about structuring the interview as well. I mean, when you do a win-loss analysis and the, the insights you get from this can inform tons of different parts of your business, but as well, specifically gathering information on competitors. Is there also, what are the kind of key things that you should be doing within an interview to, to get to uh, kind of get that information? Because people are sometimes um, tight to the chest on that kind of information. Yeah, so I know that we have a deliverable that we're going to send out to the, the group after this call at some point um, that we put together that, that outlines, like, here's a typical win-loss interview, and then here are some questions that you can ask along the way. The, you know, the first one, when you're, when you're getting into the uh, initial parts of the question, you, you, when you're warming up, you want to understand like what's the person's experience in the space that, I, that I'm in. So you might ask them a question like, hey, what other providers have you worked with like us that are in the competitive enablement space? Do you have any previous experience or bias? Well, yes, I do. You know, I worked with this company and I had a terrible experience and that's why I'm talking to you, right? Or no, but I'm talking to these other companies right now. I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's good information. So like right off the bat, you can ask questions that feel more like, um, you know, warm up ish questions about them, but you're getting nuggets of competitive intelligence. And then when you're starting to ask about business drivers, like why were you looking for a solution? Oftentimes they have some sort of incumbent in place and they're looking for a replacement. So 
if you get that type of response, you can ask like, well, what are the challenges with that provider? Like, why, why were you, why did they not fill your cup anymore? Like what, what went uh, wrong or what's going wrong that, that's forcing you to look for a different solution. So that's all business driver focused. Oftentimes it will be competitive in nature and that will give you a lot of great information about what the other company's not doing so well. Um, you also wanna kind of get a sense of evaluation bias. So when you're having conversations about um, you, like, hey, how did you hear about Clue? They will tell you uh, that my associate from, you know, just joined our organization and used Clue at a past company, which is why we had included you in our evaluation. Uh, and you might say, oh, that's great. Was there anybody else that had previous experience or bias with any other providers? Well, yeah, you know, we have these other folks who were more in the other camp and, they're, they're more biased on, on the other providers. And people are like, well, why? <laughs> you know, why, why is that? Like, what, what is it that's, that, that they think that, um, you know, that, like, what, what is their objection as it relates to Clue or something along those lines? Um, you can get into general questions, like who else did you look at in consideration? What did you think of each provider? You know, how would you stack our products and services against theirs, our pricing against theirs, our sales approach? our reputation or our go-to-market um, motion and messages. Um, and then you start to get into like, well, how do you narrow down the list? If you looked at these three providers and you chose us, if it's a win interview, like what was it about the others that, you know, you didn't like, you know, what, why, why did they end up as, at, you know, who was runner up, you know, and then who was, who was third and, and why? And they'll tell you a lot of awesome information and a really important point to make here, which I probably should have made earlier, is that when interviews are sometimes often the best source of competitive intelligence. Loss interviews are great too, but the person who's just partnered with you and looked at three other providers or two other providers are much more likely and op open to, to sharing information about why they didn't choose the other folks and they chose you. So a lot of folks will go into win-loss interviews programs and they'll say, well, I just really want to know why we lost. And it's not a loss program, it's a win-loss okay. program. So there's a huge competitive intelligence benefit to, to going after the wins and people often just overlook them. And then you can get into product things like, hey, you know, what do you think about our solution as compared to the others? Where are they further ahead or behind us? Um, you can get into sales questions when you're talking about your own sales performance and what went well or not so well, you can get into, you know, how did our sales team compare to the others? Like, were there any cautionary tales amongst the, the bunch? And oftentimes there are. I found that's funny when you mentioned like talking about win, win interviews and the stuff that comes from that too. That's naturally when we talked about earlier, like the potential hesitation among sales folks or other teams as well for just negative feedback. It's like, no, let's find the trends and why we win too and share those amongst the organization give the sales reps that are having killer sales cycles doing a great job through their through the entire sales cycle give them the shout outs give them the kudos and then use that information to kind of inform and educate other sellers on the team as well i also on the interview side of things negative questions what are the questions you should not be asking or the types of questions you should not be asking during a win loss <laughs> well um you know, you should kind of go with the flow on a win-loss interview and, and probe into areas that, that are important. I, I think it's about how you ask the question and when you ask the question in the discussion. I think that that is, is important. Um, you know, you, you don't want to, it's not a question, but I'll, I'll kind of answer that in a little bit of a, a different way. You don't want to do things like handle objections. Uh, we, we have a, a client who recently signed up with us and they said that they had been doing win-loss interviews internally and, and they had recently listened to one of them and found that the person who conducted the interview halfway through started to handle the objections of the person um, that they were interviewing. Like, you don't want to do that. <laughs> that is not the point of a win-loss interview. You want to be a safe haven for, for feedback and information. People will not agree to the interview if they feel like they're going to be resold or attempted to be resold. Um, so, I, you know, qu bad questions to ask. I can't really, I can't think of bad questions to ask, but, but there's bad things to do for sure. Yeah. From what I'm hearing, it's more just like the approach you take to the interview and kind of the, like you mentioned when you're saying 
what you should be doing is sort of like when you're saying like building rapport, setting sort of an energy within the conversation that makes it feel less like an interrogation, I suppose. Yeah, you want to be yourself. You know, you want to be curious. You want to be uh, interested. And you want to, we, we follow a practice called the five whys or the five hows, which when you get to that point in the discussion where somebody's saying something really interesting, you're like, oh, I, I want more on that. Don't just move on, you know, to the next question. Spend time, ask why that thing has happened or why that's so important to them. Well, you know, they're, they, they didn't integrate well with our finance package. And well, what, which finance package do you use? And why was that important? And, you know, you, you want to kind of get into the details, the root cause behind things uh, to find out more. You know, if you're, if you're just kind of staying at the surface and you're going really wide, building an inch deep, you might get some good stuff, but you really want to look for those moments to be able to, to probe in. I, I kind of, my example is that, you know, the guy on the beach with the metal detector looking for a, a ring or something, he's spending a lot of time looking for that ring. But once he gets there and he has an indicator that there's value, he starts to dig and dig and dig until he gets whatever that might be. Sometimes it's a, you know, a can cap sometimes. <laughs> Um, but, but that's, that's the kind of stuff that that's important in these interviews. Yeah. It feels like kind of the active listening portion is that you're start, sort of monitoring the, the, the responses. And then when you, that signal goes, how do you, how do you dig in a way that allows the person as well to be answering that question for you? Cause I think as well, when you're, when you kind of get that, like, okay, this could be going somewhere, you might have a inclination to start speaking and digging yourself. But it's always you're going to get unveil more when the actual interviewee is is kind of sharing from their perspective. The, the other thing, just real quick on that point, is um, you, you want to be super confident in the interviews, too. Like, you know, you can't be passive. Uh, you, you have to really be, to your point, active listening, but an active participate participant in the discussion. Um, and, you know, just be courageous when you're asking those questions, especially the competitive ones. If you hesitate, they will hesitate back, right, in sharing information with you. If you ask the question in a powerful, confident manner, then they will answer it. It's simple as that. So there's a lot of style associated with getting some of that deep detail. Uh, don't be passive. Be you know, confident in, in those questions. I was, I was in the office, actually, yesterday. I was talking with uh, an AE about, I was like, I've got Ryan jumping on. We're talking all things win-loss. And immediately he was like, I've got a question. You need to ask Ryan. So I, and it actually got me thinking is um, where, where does sales fit in all of this from a win-loss perspective? Because I think it's, there's an understanding, like you can't just rely on sales feedback for your win-loss. Like there's, there's an implicit bias, but does that mean that they should be not involved at all? Like what, what looks like, where, where does sales fit perfectly? Like what would be the ideal um, kind of partnership between sales folks that are in, in, in all of these deals and win-loss research? So I, I think sales has a big part in it, especially on the loss side. You know, being a, a salesperson myself, you know, post-mortem discussions are really important to figure out why you, um, why you lost a deal and to train sales on how to have those discussions in a really constructive manner. Uh, and, and, you know, lacking of any sort of emotion or, or you know, want to, to handle those objections again um, is important too. So I think they, they play a big part on the win side as well. You know, why did you choose us? Why did you not choose somebody else? I do, however, think that um, getting the stranger involved in the discussion, you know, somebody who has no vested interest in the outcome of the deal is really important. Um, that neutral perspective and that neutral party allows them to ask questions about sales performance. Like, hey, how did the sales team do? Did they do well? And you had mentioned uh, earlier that you, you, know, you think wins would help celebrate the victories of, of these salespeople. They do, but they also show that a lot of wins are pretty ugly wins and barely wins. Uh, in, and there's a lot of interesting insight that comes out in the win interviews um, on, on, in that regard. But Sales does play a part. Our perspective on sales feedback, however, is that you know we we know that seller that buyers don't really aren't totally open and honest regularly with with sellers. We also recognize that they're um, looking to you know on the loss side just break up with them. 
and say what they need to say. It wasn't you, it was me, you know, <laughs> like that whole thing to, to get off the phone and, and move on. Um, and, you know, their job is not to be a win-loss interviewer. Their job is to sell. So you want to you give them enough ammunition to be able to say, here are the four or five questions that, that you really should ask in, in the discussion. Um, and, and use that as, a, as an input into your, into your Salesforce CRM or whatever CRM that you're using. The, the other piece of this is that as product marketers or competitive intelligence leaders or just GTM leaders in general, you want to look to sales feedback to find out what sales needs, right? So, you know, if you're if you're conducting independent interviews, win-loss interviews, or using a product marketer to do that, you know, that might be more honest and, and open content and will help guide you on like, hey, this is what the buyers really need. With the seller side, it helps inform you like this is what the sellers need. Right. So if they bring up pricing all the time as the reason, which they always do, right, that's always the reason for, for losing. You want to dig more into that. Um, or if they complain about a competitor doing something, you want to dig more into that. You don't want to, you, you know, that's not the God's honest truth necessarily all the time, but you want to use it as a, a signpost to say, hey, we need to look more into this. If sales is having trouble on pricing, we need to not change our pricing, but we need to maybe train sales on how to handle pricing discussions in a, in a bit of a different way. So it's a little bit of a different view, you know, buyer's truth, seller's perspective, um, and, and, you know, using that as, as an enablement to help identify what, what challenges sales might be having. We, we have a question from Adam here as well. Great name, by the way. Um, Looking at this one, this one's it's actually slightly slightly different to what we've been talking about around the how um, around constructing an interview. Is he asks, how do you recommend surveying win loss insights for these higher volume, smaller deal size, like more transactional deals? So I think maybe shorter deal cycles, those those quicker deals. They're often too small individually to warrant dedicated resources or paying for a win loss report. So, yeah. Good, really good question. So all different types of organizations, transaction volumes, complexity of their product uh, solution, uh, global global versus local. So there's a lot of different dynamics when putting a win-loss program in place. And I think uh, Adam's spot on that using a survey is a great way to cast a wide net and collect a lot of data from a lot of different um, people transaction wise. But you also want to collect some information through interviews uh, as well. And, and what we will recommend to organizations is you kind of look at segmenting your data set, I'm sorry, your transaction volume into things like product region, um, loss to a particular competitor, deal size. And by segmenting, you start to end up with these buckets of transactions. And within that bucket, if you have a thousand transactions that you, you want to send out uh, survey to, you might want to prioritize 30 of them to reach out to for, for win-loss interviews, which might get you 15 or, or 10 interviews itself. And then, you, then you've got this great data set that's larger of online survey data that you can stack up against your qualitative interview data. And that kind of keeps the, the cost down a bit on the, on, on the program, whether you're using a third party or, or doing it yourself. It makes it more manageable um, as well. But that's how we see the larger transaction volume, lower price point programs working well. And I, I'll, I'll mention, you know, what you learn through the program is so much far more valuable than the deal size itself. Because if you can identify across your, your, your interviews or your data set that these are the four or five levers that we need to, to pull to be able to improve our win rates or, or improve, increase our transaction volume, well, even if it was a $500 transaction and you spend, you know, much more than that on, on finding that out, it will help raise all boats and you'll, you'll be able to see huge gains within, within that part of the business overall. Um, so it's, it's, it's certainly worth it. We've seen it work quite well. All right. We have time for a couple more questions too. So make sure to fire those in if you have any. I did want to talk about something you mentioned. So we've kind of gone through sort of a chronological process with your win-loss interviews and analysis. But what I'm what I'm curious about too is after you've conducted the interviews, um, 
you've kind of packaged together, you found some trends. What we we notice over at Clue, what I've talked when I've talked to different customers is when you do this research, there's no value if it's not getting into the hands of the right people or being communicated in a way that other teams can actually use it. So tell me how, how you do that as someone that's conducted so many of these interviews, done so many of these reports. How do you how do you go about putting that insights into usable usable information for different teams? So there, there's a, a there's the easy way and the hard way, I guess. So the easy way is, you know, what, what we do is we actually take the, the interview, we, we re- record it, have it transcribed, and then summarize the findings. And then those findings go into to Dovetail, the platform I mentioned earlier, where they're distributed to the sales team or the product team or whoever is on the, the, the distribution list or, or who has access to that platform. So people can talk about the interviews and, and share them broadly, or they can watch the recordings of the interviews. We have people who get together as a team and sit through a, a recent win or loss interview to discuss it and to, to act on it. So that's one thing you can do. Um, the other thing is you can create these executive summary presentations where you roll all the data together and then present it back um, at a sales kickoff, at a leadership team meeting, um, anything that is important, a board meeting as well, that's another area. You can also create little mini research pieces on topics like price optimization or um, ease of use or something that you you might find uh, that's a key takeaway from the research that you wanna share out more broadly. So, So that's another avenue for creating content that drives value. But the harder way, which a lot of organizations do do today, is they create a committee. Um, I was on the phone with a client yesterday, a, a large um, enterprise-level technology company out of, out of uh, Silicon Valley, and they actually have a committee that gets together on a monthly basis uh, that includes different functional leaders from, from their business. They discuss the recent interviews and the summaries from that particular month. And then they actually have a RACI chart. And what they, if you're familiar with the RACI chart, it's, it's a chart that assigns tasks to different people. And what they do is they identify like, hey, within this set of data, we see this trend. We want you to look into that trend. Therefore, you're assigned to that. Um, we want to capture a baseline, like where are we today in that particular area? And then we want to set, a, set up a set of milestones uh, for that person to, to follow and then report back on the outcome of their work in, in a future, future meeting. So being able to, to get that leadership team together that's influential, identify the opportunities, assign them out, set a baseline, set milestones, and then come back to measure the results. That's what makes for a great win-loss program uh, at an operationalization lol <laughs> operationalizational level <laughs> um okay yeah we've got a couple more minutes here i did also have a question around you've done a lot of these interviews in your time i do you have any interesting or what's the funniest story you've heard or most off the wall story you've heard when you've been doing these win loss interviews so, so there's a, a lot of funny stories that come up on a regular basis. Uh, the, the one that has stuck in my mind over the years, and this was going back six or seven years ago, but it was it's still the best story ever. Uh, we interviewed a, a financial institution in also in the Bay Area, a large, a large financial institution. And at, at the time, we were working with this marketing automation platform provider, and they were a finalist in, the, in this, this evaluation process. It was a really big deal. And they had both vendors come um, to present their final demo and make a decision. When our client came in, they were, they're kind of a cool hip type organization. And the cool hip sales manager was wearing a pair of cool hip, really expensive, I'm sure, ripped jeans. And because she was a sales manager, it was like the last day of the quarter. During the demo, she was in her cool jeans, typing on her phone, approving deals. They didn't know, you know, the financial institution didn't know that, but they were so turned up. The other company came in wearing like suits and ties, like everybody else at the financial institution wears every day. Um, and the, the leadership team um, was so put off by the ripped jeans and the, and the texting during the demo, they felt there was a cultural misalignment and they went with the other company, uh, made that decision. So 
that's my ripped jeans story. I, I think it's pretty interesting. And, and the message there is for, for those who are familiar with the concept of mirroring, you always want to mirror your audience. You want to be able to connect with them. You want them to think that you're kind of one of them in, in many ways. So if they wear suits and ties, you should dress up for those meetings. Um, to be Wait, so that was why they lost? That was the reason that they lost, yeah. And are you allowed to say kind of ballpark what kind of deal size they lost just because of ripped it was, jeans? It was a it was a, a more more than a million dollar deal. Yeah, it was a big deal for them. And, and by the way, you know the salesperson didn't do anything wrong. It was the sales manager uh, that messed the deal up. So when that report came out, it was it was one of those like you're gonna share that with them and you hope that it doesn't create any sort of um, trouble between <laughs> between the sales manager and the salesperson. Well, I, yeah, this is um, get non-ripped jeans onto your Christmas list then, friends, if you need to mirror. Um, this is this has been awesome. I think actually there's one more question that we can squeeze in before we go here. Is you were talking about um, open-ended questions, allowing the interviewee to kind of expand on their questions. You don't want to be asking yes, no's. Is there such a thing as a too open-ended question? Yes, yes, for sure. You, you want to make sure the person understands what you're asking. So if you're too open-ended, you know, the answer might not align with what it is that you're, you're looking for. So you want to ask questions that are clear and concise, and the person knows exactly how to respond to that question. Something that's too open-ended would be one where they're, they have to then ask you, well, what do you mean by that? When they ask you that, you know that you've asked a question that's too open-ended. All right. With that said, this has been awesome. I appreciate everyone for jumping on, asking their questions, hopping on camera. This has been super fun. I think we'll definitely be doing more of these in the future. Ryan, thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for your time today. This has been, this has been great. Thanks everybody for joining. See everyone.